Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk to Christopher Micklig. He's a visual artist and a professor at the University of Oregon, and he recently released a book titled File Under Slime. In it, he traces the origins of the idea of slime back to the early 1900s, with associations to ectoplasm, femininity, and sexuality. In his research, he found that people like H.P. Lovecraft and John Paul Sartre helps solidify the concept of slime within philosophy and pop culture, paving the way for it to be an analog or a proxy for describing the unknown. In the 1950s, for example, there were movies like The Blob, representing the social anxiety surrounding the atomic bomb. And then, in the 1980s, with movies like The Stuff, Street Trash, and The Toxic Avenger, slime represented a fear of toxicity, or the handling of toxic waste. Christopher says that what we choose slime to represent evolves over time. More recently, it has entered rap music through artists like Nori from Capone Noriega and newer guys like Young Thug. The way these rappers are using the word slime is different than how it's been used in the past. It's a substitute for friend or homie. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber Seward Brewing Company The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau Derek Adolph Sharon Liska Jake Liska Alaska Surf Adventure and Borderline Legacy Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers, baby onesies and more. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to Christopher Micklig. He grew up in Gerwood, Alaska in the 80s. He remembers it being a small town back then, maybe about 400 to 500 people. It's a place that instilled in him the idea of closeness and the importance of a supportive community. Sentiments that continue to inspire and influence him. Recently, He's been doing research on different Aleutian communities, trying to get a better grasp on his family history. He has roots on his dad's side in the Aleutian Islands before the Russian fur trade. He says that it's been a difficult process, that it's confusing for him because of the complicated history of Aleutian communities as a result of colonialism and the displacement that occurred during and after World War II. How people who had been living in a place for generations 
were forced to upend their ancestral ways of living. So he tries to imagine, even project himself, to the time of his ancestors on the island of Unga. Without much oral history from his own family to go off of, his research is helping him better understand where he comes from. So here he is, Christopher Maklig. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! Do you remember your first interaction with slime or the idea of slime? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I think probably being a kid of the 80s, it was so ubiquitous and it was such a part at a certain point, you know, like 84, 85, 86, um, every toy had some kind of a slime component. Um, <laughs> and so really, like, I think my, uh, you know, some really early memories that I have, uh, there was slime uh, accompanied whatever that was. Um, so my experience of slime, you know, my earliest experience of slime were primarily through pop culture references. And mm -hmm. the 80s, of course, was really kind of um, chock full of slime. Um, aside from that, I mean, I think, um, you know, maybe we all have kind of encounters on a daily basis with slimy things. So it might have just been, you know, rotten food or some kind of a slime mold in the forest mm -hmm. in Girdwood or, uh, yeah. you know, um, a thawing dog poop. Like this is like a, a kind of a, um, you know, an annual kind of like seasonal theme in Girdwood or in lots of towns in Alaska where there are lots of dogs. So, yeah, uh, yeah it would be something like that, probably, you know, slimy things. And then, of course, you know, that the meaning changes a little bit as you as you um, accumulate those experiences or get older. Yeah. You know, I was trying to think about my first interaction with slime and it might've been watching Nickelodeon as a kid and people would get slimed. And then as I got older, you know, it would be eighties horror movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's such a, um, it's such a kind of essential part of, um, like history of different television genres. I mean, you can't do that on television is so iconic. And um, that was really, you know, an important part of the research for the book, of course, thinking about what are, were some of the first um, representations of slime on television or in film. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that on television is really central there. Um, really interestingly, and the thing that kind of um, I enjoy most about researching that particular example, um, you can't do that on television, double dare, um, that the contestants often um, had slime dumped upon them whenever they didn't know the answer to a question. And so <laughs> yeah. I, I like that idea. There seems to be a consistent connection with with slime kind of um, signaling or, uh, you know, uh, marking the unknown in some way. We reach yeah, kind of yeah. a, a limit of knowledge and we get slime poured on us or we encounter slime, etc. Yeah. How about when you started looking at slime as a metaphor for something bigger? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things that seems consistent is that uh, slime has changed color and changed consistency in terms of how it's written about or how it's represented in media or television, et cetera. Um, and along with that, there's usually some kind of um, a change in the way, yeah, that it that it sort of um, a change in what it means um, socially or culturally. I think yeah. um, if we look at a film like um, The Blob from 1958 starring mm -hmm. Steve McQueen, The Blob mm -hmm. there is sort of representative in a way of um, a kind of anxiety about nuclear annihilation or the atomic bomb. Mm -hmm. um, and then in the 80s, it has more to do with a sort of fear of um, uh, toxicity or handling of toxic waste. Um, 
you know, and it kind of evolves um, over time. Um, right now, um, it's interesting. I think it's kind of an open question, but a lot of current writing that I'm I've really been enjoying by authors such as um, Elvia Wilk or Lucy F. Jones. They're talking about slime and slime molds in particular as kind of modeling maybe these new ways of organizing communities or um, networking between different um, energy sources, et cetera. So there's some really kind of incredible research and interest in slime and what it means now. Um, but yeah, it, it historically has always been linked to some kind of anxiety or fear that that you know you can't quite put your finger on but that's kind of um overarching yeah yeah okay so we're talking about this book that you wrote file under slime where you trace the origins of the idea of slime back to the early 1900s with associations to ectoplasm femininity and sexuality what were these early themes surrounding slime about yeah, um, oh, these are such great questions, Cody. I think that um, some of the material that I came across um, uh, initially, some some of the earliest references, um, the definition of slime is rather restricted or rather specific. And something that happens over time is that it becomes uh, more broad or slime and its meaning um, be begins to kind of um, take up like more of a spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, it, it is true that there's early writing, um, uh, for example, by French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, who writes about slime in his sort of monumental book, Being and Nothingness, which is kind of like this um, important work of, of existentialist philosophy. Mm -hmm. And uh, he does describe um, slime as, as being connected in some ways to um, to femininity. But um, I think also, um, you know, I'm teaching a class right now on slime and sliminess um, with a group of students at University of Oregon. And one okay. of the things that we've um, uh, that we've kind of made a decision about, we might be the only kind of group of uh, large group of people talking about slime seriously yeah, <laughs> right <okay>. now, <laughs> is that, um, it, that it was important for us to separate it from actually a kind of a gender um, and uh, think of it just in terms of like its formal qualities and um, its kind of uh, uh, um, kind of what it does, how it moves, um, how it works, um, and think of it less as sort of um, uh, less as a kind of, uh, you know, connected to femininity, for example, um, and think of it more as uh, kind of a, a being in, in and of itself. Um, yeah, so that example, um, however, um, in Jean-Paul Sartre's writing, he's the first person to really describe it as a substance. He says, you know, slime is sticky. You cannot slide across the surface. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, it, it pulls you in. It, it uh, kind of threatens you. Um, if you encounter a slimy character, you detect that there's something uh, kind of off about that. Um, and yet, he says, we're enthralled by this substance. Um, yeah. It's dangerous. It's it's gross. Um, these characters are questionable, but we're kind of attracted or, or drawn to them in some way. Um, and that, I think, is still really holds true for slime and slimy things. Um, uh, that part, though, in that, in that text um, initially came out of research that I was doing for a separate project entirely about the history of skiing, okay. um, which, would, which would be interesting to you. And um, <laughs> when, I, when I came across um, uh, this philosopher's writing about skiing, um, then immediately he switches into this discussion of slime as a kind of contrast. Um, snow being something you can slide across and yeah. slime being something that you get stuck in. So right away, I thought, oh, this is great territory you know, uh, for me. And um, I went in the slime direction. <laughs> the slime direction. I like that. <laughs> John Paul Sartre comes up quite a bit in the book. And I kind of made a mental note as, you know, I was reading through the book and I'm like, oh, there he is again. Oh, there he is again. There he is again. And I wonder, is that in your research, 
was that the origin, you know, when you, um, read being in nothingness where you're like, okay, this is, this is like the common thread. This is the through line. Yes, for sure. And I think that, um, the, um, that's totally true. And, um, still that writing really resonates and connects with a lot of contemporary, um, thinking about slime. And it's also a really useful kind of early definition that a lot of writers and other people that are thinking about these types of substances are working against. Um, and I think that that's like just an important part of like scholarship or research is that mm -hmm. you recognize in a work from the past things that are really valuable and useful to carry an idea forward into the future. Um, and then you recognize that there are other sort of limitations maybe in the work of a previous, um, of a, you know, an older work. Um, and you find ways to kind of um, uh, square that with um, what our current understanding is of the world. Um, and, you know, since uh, the time that that book was published, there's been obviously like huge developments in science, mm -hmm. um, in cultural studies, media studies, you know, entire new fields have kind of um, emerged and fully formed. And so, um, yeah, Sartre is kind of um, a good character in a way to think about slime through. And um, yeah, I did reference him a lot. And part of it was because it was really interesting to me. Um, and part of it was because almost every other author who I was reading who wrote about slime had also contended with or had kind of worked through or thought about Sartre's um, influence on that conversation. What's it like introducing a subject like slime to your students? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, it is, uh, it definitely, there are these moments where I feel very grateful and also recognize a kind of, um, you know, a productive irony in the idea of taking <laughs> a topic seemingly, you know, on the surface, like superficially so ridiculous, um, taking it really seriously. Okay. And uh, we have, I mean, this class that I'm teaching right now, it's a 10 week class. We meet twice a week for, um, you know, two hours per class. And every week we um, engage in a, a series of different readings and um, uh, reading different research about slime and slimy things. And so we ease our way into it. Um, yeah. And really, you know, we take it week by week um, and mostly we've been um, organizing the class around discussions of slime that are connected to other big ideas um, such as um, uh, climate science. Um, we have a week that talks specifically about um, uh, recycling and conspicuous consumption. Um, we have a week where we talk about slime and its history and, um, you know, visual media, mm -hmm. um, slime and its connection is through literature and poetry. Um, so there is a lot of material and it's just a matter of sort of sequencing it in a way where you kind of cumulatively build this really rich understanding um, of slime that kind of challenges these preconceived notions um, yeah. that we have about it. I would imagine you have students who are a little surprised, you know, when they come in, they're like, what is this class about slime? And then they realize like, oh, there's actually a lot of thought put into this. Yeah, absolutely. And a quote that I really love by another author that we, um, whose work we read a lot of in this class, um, another French uh, philosopher, sort of um, uh, an antagonist actually of Jean-Paul Sartre, his name is George Bataille. And George Bataille wrote a lot about um uh, slimy things, abject things. Um, he was sort of a, an outsider um, member associated with the Surrealist movement. And in a text that he wrote that was translated after he died, he is quoted as saying that he wants the reader after his death to get 
stuck in the slime of his writing. Okay. And okay. I, I like this idea of just, you know, sometimes we're contending with things from the past and, and we get trapped in it. We get enthralled, we get obsessed or singularly focused and we try to, you know, understand something or, um, dig deep into something where all the answers aren't provided for us. We have to do some interpretive work. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's the kind of work I really love doing with students. You also mentioned H.P. Lovecraft in the book, who predates John Paul Sartre. So do you think that, I don't know, this concept started with him? Yeah, I think in for sure. Um, I That example of the H.P. Lovecraft story at the Mountains of Madness mm -hmm. is such a compelling um, thing to think about because the story was written... And then later it was illustrated um, when it was published in a, a sort of, um, you know, like a comic, a comic book sort of fantasy story magazine. Mm -hmm. And I love the idea that the illustrator had to read what H.P. Lovecraft was describing, these kind of <laughs> yeah. gelatinous masses, these yeah, blocks, cosmic horror. cosmic horror, and had to actually draw that, right? And so in some ways, I that's a funny contradiction, right? Um, because when you're reading it, you the reader gets to sort of do that work uh, on their own. Of course, everyone's imagination of what that creature looks like is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And um, it's just a funny thing about um, culture and uh, the way we represent or interpret things. Someone drew it. And yeah, there is a, a really productive overlap there, um, you know, between Lovecraft and um, Sartre in terms of what's being described and also mm -hmm. the scariness of it. Um, anecdotally, one thing that I really um, see as like consistent is that um, in that story at the Mountains of Madness, these scientists, right, they're kind of like Cartesian thinkers, they're mapping, they're researching, they're collecting data, they're they're knowing things, right? Yeah. And then yeah. suddenly they reach this limit, and they don't really know where they are, and they don't know what's coming up next. Um, it's kind of like, um, uh, you know, they, and that is the moment where they encounter slimy things, that, that the, the limit, the edge of knowing. Um, and that theme or that idea is really consistent in a lot of sci-fi um, and a lot of fantasy, um, scary things are encountered kind of, you know, at the, at the boundary or the barrier of, um, what can be mapped or what can be understood. And I think that's a little bit about uh, a little bit of what Sartre was talking about as well. Mm -hmm. Something that's interesting about Lovecraft to me is that the time that he was writing, you know, he's writing for, um, Maybe he's not writing for these people, and maybe actually he was, now that I think about it, but lots of Victorian people were very superstitious. They were really into the occult. And so the things that Lovecraft is writing about is almost taken literally, I would assume. Whereas when we read it now, you know, these are like allegories. These are, uh, you know, it's a work of like science fiction or horror fiction. Yeah, um, totally. Um, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it has something to do with um, just that these stories were being written at a time when there was much less mapping or maybe less, much less knowledge about the world than there is even now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think like um, deep, the, the deep ocean still remains like, you know, an, un, an unexplored kind of space, interestingly. Yeah. Um, but yeah. in terms of just, you know, um, the surface of the earth um, geographically, I guess there's still discoveries being made, of course, but you know this would have been, um, this would have been sort of uh, the, at a moment where there was still a lot of interest in kind of what exploration might yield, mm -hmm. and along with that, a lot of fear and anxiety. Yeah. 
And Dr. Seuss is responsible for us thinking of slime as green, right? I think so. Um, I, yeah, I think uh, <laughs> at least in terms of like showing it in that vivid, uh, that vivid green, uh, that green, green. Yeah. Um, and that story, I think it's another example of how a slimy thing is used to represent a kind of an overarching kind of social anxiety. Um, in retrospect, looking at that, it's also really fascinating in terms of um, how it's representing kind of like the ultimate power of like a king, right? Um, yeah. He he wants he wants to kind of register his sort of authority in a, in the most extreme way, which is to create a new form of weather, and it winds <laughs> up being very sort of destructive. And yeah, um, I think we're kind of at a moment now where a lot of um, a lot of scientists and a lot of researchers are thinking about our own impacts through this kind of. Um, eminence of um, late stage capitalism, et cetera, and its effects, um, perhaps on climate or on the environment. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's this kind of, um, it's it's an incredible kind of connection and an early example, yeah, of this, this sticky, destructive material that interestingly kind of vanishes at the end, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Simply through the king saying like, I'm sorry. <laughs> so there's <laughs> a very simple solution um, at the end of that yeah. story. Real quick, do you really think that Weekend at Bernie's is a zombie movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, you're the first person maybe who's read the caption to that image that I snuck in. <laughs> well, Cody, more, more specifically, I think that I would argue that it's a zombie buddy film. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a genre, but if there was such a genre, um, this would be the this would be the the, the sort of crown jewel. Um, I think it is kind of a zombie film, but it's a zombie film in the sense that um, Bernie is not reanimated through kind of uh, overacting okay. or uh, a kind of like this heavily mannered, you know, this highly mannered kind of zombified uh, shuffling that we see in zombies in like The Walking Dead, for example. Yeah, yeah, George Romero. I think it's. Yeah, totally. I think that it is a zombie film in the sense that um, the medium of cinema itself is basically facilitating a two hour long film <laughs> whose central figure is dead. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's like that. I think it's, you know, I like the conceptual kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, the thought experiment of how we would consider that to be a zombie film. Yeah. You know, I feel like it being a zombie film is contingent on there being a weekend at Bernie's too, because Oof. in the first one, these guys are just hanging out with a dead guy. You know, that's, that's kind of the conceit of the whole thing to me. And it's so absurd and it's so amazing that that movie got made. And I love that movie, but for there to be a number two and for things to happen to Bernie, like in number two, you know, get shot, with a uh a spear you know like a, an underwater spear and he's walking around with this you know thing through his head but he's not really walking around he's he's being like led by people so i think that for him to still exist in a number two movie which takes place however long after the first one then we can consider the first one a zombie movie I, I think this is a solid theory, and I think it's something I need to explore further in File Under Slime Volume 2. I love it. Hilarious. Okay, so taking it to the 70s and the 80s, we have horror movies like The Stuff, which deals with slime invading or co-opting food. Then there's Street Trash, 
that deals with alcohol as a poisonous or toxic slime, in my opinion. Yes. And then we have Toxic Avenger, you know, and that deals with toxic waste. What do you think it is about horror and science fiction that works so well with slime? Oh, that's a great question. I think it connects in some ways to what we were talking about um, in the work of H.P. Lovecraft, just that, that slimy things, uh, things that are formless, creatures whose shape is kind of new and unfamiliar to us, there mm -hmm. is a kind of um, a hesitation or um, a kind of fear and anxiety about um, interaction with them. Um, I think it, it fundamentally has to do with this idea of not knowing what to expect. And then um, in order for that fear to be fulfilled in a way that um, delivers a kind of a scare, mm -hmm. um, the, the form has to be, or it often is, and it works that it works out that it's slimy or that its form is sort of surprising or um, very different than what might be expected. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I was listening to someone talking recently about um, the, the possibility, of course, there's been all this kind of um, testimony recently about um, uh, unidentified flying objects or another mm -hmm. called, um, uh, it has a different name, uh, something uh, aerial phenomenon. UAP? Yeah, unidentified aerial phenomenon. And someone was saying how disappointing it would be at this point if we did sort of um, uh, realize or suddenly discover that aliens are real and that they're just sort of like a thousand years more technologically advanced than us. It would be disappointing um, <laughs> that it would be much more interesting if they were interdimensional travelers. In other words, there's yeah. like, I think kind of a, a, we have a desire to understand, but and sometimes we want to sustain um, the experience of not knowing. And yeah. I think that science fiction is all about that. Um, it's always kind of offering a different way of thinking about a kind of alternate future or an alternative universe or a different type of um, uh, being that might exist. And that's part of the excitement, I think, of um, of science fiction as a genre. I feel like slime and things like slime really have this uh ability to fill in the blank of the unknown and then once we figure out like you were saying what that unknown is it's kind of boring but do you ever get in these conversations with your students and it's about it's okay to not know absolutely this class is really an example of that approach to teaching and um, it is very central to, I think, the students' experience in the class. And I make it really clear from the outset that when we're talking about something that is described as formless, that there is a kind of limit to what type of form or what type of definitions we can assign to it. Mm -hmm. um, and so it is a part of it. And it is very contrary and, and um, contradicts um, more traditional ways of learning or more traditional ways of researching or um, discovering new things in the classroom, for sure. Um, and I have always really enjoyed um, different experimental approaches to teaching um, and uh, challenging kind of uh, traditional pedagogical models, breaking down the kind of hierarchy between professor and student. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a lifelong learner. I, I love teaching. I love working with undergraduate students. And for this class, this topic does that really well, what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of kind of right up front. It says to the students, this is going to be 
um, more of an exploration, a series of experiments, a series of thought experiments, opportunities for different types of like creative and critical responses, and that we're, we will, you know, we will learn a lot along the way, but mm -hmm. we're not going to walk away with a fixed definition of something that is, you know, uh, by definition in a way kind of um, undefinable or ungraspable. Um, and so slime is really unique in that way. Um, there are other topics, of course, that you could kind of um, uh, create a similar course around, but slime is so enthralling. And so uh, there are so many varied examples in the sciences, visual art, mm -hmm. um, history, creative writing, et cetera. It's, it's, a, it's um, a very productive territory just for kind of learning for the sake of learning. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself nostalgic for a specific decade or generation, a time period you find yourself going back to often? Oh, wow. That's such a great question. I mean, generally, I, I was having a conversation with a colleague about um, pre-COVID and uh, there's this almost kind of like a time a time gap experience. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Okay. Um, uh, I feel like it was yesterday that it that uh, we were all kind of in lockdown, and in fact, mm -hmm. like that's when I wrote this when I wrote this book. Um, but in fact, it was a while ago, and um, it, it was a finite period of time. I have really vivid memories, and um, I think my whole kind of um, experience of being an educator and an artist, and um, uh, you know, being a um, just being a person, really changed radically. Mm -hmm. um, at COVID. So maybe I'm kind of nostalgic for pre-COVID. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Something like that. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I guess I'm not a very nostalgic person. Um, but uh, yeah, if, if that's my initial answer, I'm not sure. I might, I might um, have a different answer tomorrow, but. So you said that you're not a nostalgic person, but I'm still going to ask this next one. Great. Because, <laughs> because I think, you know, I think, I think we can come up with something fun with it. I'm probably wrong. Let's go. <laughs> Do you ever find yourself being nostalgic for a time that you didn't live in, that you didn't exist? Oh, wow. That's a really um, interesting question. Um, yes and no. I think um, because I was focusing on, for this for this book, for example, and and uh, just I was reading so much material that was written in the uh, the 30s and the 40s. Of course, um, mm -hmm. there's um, a lot of um, uh, important sort of work that was being done. At the same time, it's a incredibly culturally and politically fraught time mm -hmm. um, for the world. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I have an answer to that. I mean, I think um, as somebody who is sort of like always kind of reading and. Uh, following following sort of threads of um, of discourse or researching different topics, um, I definitely get singularly focused on maybe writing of a particular era or artwork that was made during a particular time. Um, but traveling back in time or being in another time, that's fascinating. It's a time travel question. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so here's here's my answer to that. I guess I the first thing I would think of is how far back in time could you travel and uh, and be able to blend in. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a great question. So maybe like the, maybe the seventies or the eighties, but, or, or the sixties, but, um, before, if I were to travel back in time, any, anywhere before that, I think I'd be found out immediately. I don't think I, <laughs> I don't think I could, <laughs> I think I'd, I'd be, it'd be, it'd be, um, a real problem. So assuming that you can just blend in, you know, <laughs> 
give you the, we give you the clothes, you know, okay. for that time period and you can just fit right in and your language is their language, you know, all of that fits. Yes. Um, well, I have I have an answer to that. I guess it's like very personal and, um, uh, and rather than kind of thinking about it more culturally, I've been doing okay. a lot of research into um, uh, my family's history and uh, my dad's side of the family has roots in the Aleutian Islands going back before um, Russian fur trade. Okay. And um, been doing kind of a lot of reading, a lot of genealogical research and just cultural research um, about that that moment in time. And um, I can't help but constantly sort of project myself into um, uh, into those places and into those experiences. I've been reading lots of firsthand accounts, um, lots of um, a documentation and interviews mm -hmm. um, with uh, with different sort of Aleutian communities, um, specific specifically from Unalaska, um, Unga, uh, Sandpoint, Saint George, etc. Um, and I just find it to be so incredible um, in terms of a kind of uh, resilience and um, a kind of um, trajectory, just of. Uh, culture and community that sustains through these kind of phenomenal uh, uh, challenges, both kind mm -hmm. of um, climatological, cultural, um, uh, colonialist, et cetera. Um, so that's something I think that has been in my head um, a lot. Um, this summer I had an opportunity to um, visit Soldovia with my youngest kid. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you're familiar with Soldovia. Um, yeah. Yeah, across the way from from Homer, mm -hmm. and um, that was a really you know just one of these moments. If, if a lot of people obviously travel to places where uh, relatives lived prior to let's say immigration to the United States or whatever, um, and you have that sort of uh, that that feeling of kind of imagining yourself in their shoes, of course, right? Um, and so yeah, that was like a very visceral kind of um, really immediate yeah nostalgia through that sort of lens. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about Unga? And also, when you project yourself into that period of time of your ancestors, what does that look like for you? Um, for me, it's really uh, like confusing, I guess, is a good, a good, my best answer to that. Um, I think that um, there's such a, um, a such a, um, a kind of dispersion and such a, um, uh, such a series of, um, a series of kind of complications um, just with the history of Aleutian communities um, mm -hmm. that kind of culminates into this, these new configurations that are the result of displacement um, that happen um, around World War II uh, and after. Um, that, yeah, the experience is just, um, yeah, challenging to think about, mm -hmm. really. Um, yeah, that's that would be the best answer that I have for it. Um, it feels very... Um, uh, very, yeah, it's very challenging to think about or to kind of, um, to understand. Could you be more specific? Oh, I think, um, it just has to do with, um, you know, kind of, uh, physical and also cultural displacement of people that lived in one area for many generations and then are kind of, um, forced for whatever reason to, um, recreate or kind of continue in some configuration or in some way um, their traditions and their culture in another place, maybe not through their their own decisions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is something that happens and has happened and continues to happen to cultures all over the world. So that is kind of my framework for thinking about that is just, um, you know, when I'm reading about the Russian fur trade, 
it's a history of kind of economics and it's a history of colonialism. It's a history mm -hmm. of um, a series of um, kind of a cultural appropriations and um, cultural genocide it's, or actual genocide. And then, you know, after a certain period of time, there's the, um, the kind of a globalization of the um, of hunting and fishing. And you see a lot of European um, uh, sort of influence in that area. It's kind of a second wave of, of, um, of a cultural influence, mm -hmm. um, et cetera. And so it's just a series of, a series of kind of, uh, interruptions, I guess, um, is the way that I've been thinking about it based on what I've been reading and conversations I've been having with others. I mean, I've learned so much to be honest, Cody, listening to, um, interviews, um, that you've conducted on this podcast. Okay. Um, that's so awesome. for me, so for me, that's been, you know, as somebody who is not living in Alaska currently, but grew up there and has um, deep family roots there. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the podcast and the work that you've been doing here, I think, um, uh, yeah, you've had people speak extremely kind of <laughs> with a lot of knowledge and a lot of experience about these topics in ways that I, I cannot, it's not an area of expertise for me, simply a sort of, um, you know, part of my family's history. Did your dad ever talk to you about your family history on Unga? And I guess, you know, I'm not looking for uh, something like really academic. You know, I just, I wonder, you know, when you would sit down with your dad and he would tell you, yeah, we have a lot of history on Unga. Yeah. So my answer is going to be, <laughs> my answer is going to be, um, maybe, uh, uh, is going to have something to do with that. Um, my parents split up when I was very early, so okay. I did not have a relationship with my dad. Okay. Um, okay. and, um, I have had conversations with my dad, not about that. And in fact, um, my grandmother, my dad's mother was, um, born in Soldovia. Um, her mother was born in Unga. Um, and there was not an interest in talking about, um, culture. Hmm, um, okay. There was a, a greater interest, um, and I don't mean this to be sort of critical, and I don't mean this uh, in a way to sound negative in any way, but there was um, at the time a sort of um, an interest, I think, in in, uh, in uh, sort of family members to um, assimilate hmm. and actually um, were experiencing different types of pressures to do that. Um, I would never kind of question the decisions of my my great grandparents, for example, or my grandparents. But yeah. um, I guess my 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 experience of that is just thinking about what what led them to make the decisions that they made, um, what pressures were they experiencing, what stresses, um, what sort of trauma did they have, what opportunities th did they see to sort of um, uh, to uh, to do other things or to move away from their kind of um, ancestral communities, et cetera. Um, and I don't think that's an uncommon story, but, um, yeah. I think that that's, you know, it's something that, um, that I've heard and experienced, um, like often. So that's why you think that your grandma, she didn't want to talk about her history because maybe it was too tough. I think that was part of it. Yeah. And I don't really have great answers to that because again, it's, you know, a, a relationship that was, um, that was fraught just through, you know, family, uh, family changes over time. Yeah. But it is exciting to, um, to read kind of, um, archives and interviews, um, uh, from Soldovia and from, uh, uh, from the history of that community, um, because I do kind of get a sense of what was happening and, mm -hmm. um, uh, and what that was all about. Um, you know, I, I understand to a certain extent for sure. Earlier, you said that you, try to put yourself in those situations. 
Can you give me an example of that? You know, you're reading about all of this history and maybe you're thinking about how you would react in those moments. You know, one of the things um, I'll say right now is like, I'm a visual artist. Like um, mm -hmm. I, that's my primary sort of um, activity. Um, writing the slime book has been an amazing kind of adventure, but but really I'm a studio artist and um, I work in the studio, uh, make collages, sculptures, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, my kind of immediate and really kind of enduring interests about kind of Aleutian culture in particular is just thinking about the materials, um, the motifs, the practices, the traditions of uh, sort of visual culture. Mm -hmm. So of course, as an artist, I think, well, what were, what were the sort of uh, marks that were being made? Mm -hmm. What tools were being used to do that? What natural resources were being um, uh, harvested or cultivated or sort of used um, at what times of year? Um, uh, were the objects purely sort of for utility? Were they decorative? Were they ceremonial? Mm -hmm. um, I, I love learning about culture um, through sort of artistic production. And so that's, uh, you know, for me, like a, a big part of it. Um, just thinking about kind of what, what colors were available based on, um, you know, materials uh, traditionally. Um, I was just talking with students today about the history of purple, um, which is, this is not an illusion history, but um, the history of purple being connected to uh, harvesting of, um, of, of sea mollusks um, and this kind of extraction of a gland that when squeezed kind of excretes this really kind of deep, deep purple, mm -hmm. um, which is connected to sort of some of the earliest uses of, of purple um, in, um, in different cultures. Um, and so, yeah, I think about that, um, just uh, what was being made, um, what did it mean? Uh, Etc. Um, by the way, I really enjoyed the conversation that you had with uh, James Johnson, who I think, yeah, um, obvious, obviously, is like is such a phenomenal kind of thinker and maker and uh, historian and um, someone who's been working with archives. And I find that work to be really inspirational. Yeah. Totally different than what I'm doing, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, uh, you know, um, yeah. So that that type of um, that type of thing is really amazing to think about. You know, I've found that talking to artists that when they create art, it can be a form of meditation or they can find themselves in these moments of meditation. Do you find yourself when you're creating art meditating or do you, you know, try to turn your mind into this blank slate? Yeah. Um, I, it's a little bit of both. I definitely, when I'm working in the studio, I have, um, a set of parameters that I'm working with. It might be, um, um, a, a color palette, it might be a particular material, um, it, might, it might be a process that I kind of roughly know how long it will take. Mm -hmm. um, and then once those sort of terms have been established, totally, that's the space where you sort of disappear. Um, and um, I love that experience. Um, that's one of the things that um, has always really appealed to me about making art that kind of that that disappearance into the work or into the experience, mm -hmm. um, that kind of um, being by oneself in the studio working, um, I that that's that's a kind of a yeah one of the things I love about being an artist. Yeah, so you find yourself more comfortable when you're solitary. Yeah, yes. Yeah, sometimes I'm also um, kind of naturally like. Um, not gregarious, but you know, I'm teaching. So I'm either like having conversations with a lot of people or really enjoying being by myself in the studio. And I find those two activities really nourish each other. Like it's a nice, uh, it's a nice combination. Yeah. 
So in reference to your work on white noise, I read that so much of your artwork is about interference. And I felt like that also applies to this book about slime. Slime is in some way being inserted or interfering with our lives. What do you think about that? Yeah, as an interference, um, for sure. Um, the 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 exhibition that you're referring to, white noise. It's I have not thought about that in relationship to slime, but I really um, um, I like this connection. And by the way, um, thanks for looking at that work. Yeah, um, it, of course. It, um, that that work was made. Um, from a group of street posters that I uh, had been taking down in Los Angeles. And rather than using the central kind of content of the posters, the color, the typography, mm -hmm. instead of just using the very edges, which was this kind of white um, uh, glossy material. And I would leave a tiny sliver of the color of the poster that that, that edge was on mm -hmm. um, there. And then I just made a series of collages that each explored a different kind of pattern. Um, but they are, uh, the white noise um, is a reference to, um, a reference to the Don DeLillo book. It's a reference to um, also just static on television. And maybe that's mm -hmm. where the connection is that, that um, uh, I love this connection you're making, by the way. Um, I think that like uh, snow, it's sometimes referred to, or static on television, which of yeah. course like we don't experience anymore. Um, or at least broadcast television is pretty rare, right? Everything's yeah. kind of like Ethernet or whatever. Um, but the the static on the television is this, um, yeah, it is a slimy space. It's formless. Um, in Poltergeist, we see this as a space where um, the central character gets kind of makes contact or gets pulled into this sort of um, uh, this other world. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, um, so I'm not exactly answering your question, but I am <laughs> kind of a. Uh, putting uh, putting a stake in the ground and saying totally, I think that um, white noise or static, um, this kind of uh, visual disruption on the screen is a kind of slime. Um, and it seems contradictory in a way because it's not, um, you know, it's sort of digitized or at least it's, um, uh, right, it's not it's not amorphous, it's not goopy or drippy, mm -hmm. um, but it is, it does have a, a kind of a quality of sliminess, I think. Um, and that's like an example of like some things are slimy because of their physical properties and other things I think can be slimy because of their sort of um, the way that they work um, as a as a kind of a threshold or as a barrier or a boundary. Um, yeah, so um, that would be my that would be my sort of my thought about that. Um, at the end of the book, I write a little bit about the, the kind of these little airborne um, porous uh, particles that are floating always just inside or outside of the entrance to the upside down in the mm -hmm. Netflix series, Stranger Things. Yeah. And I think that that is a really, it, that was a really innovative move by the um, creators of the show to kind of expand maybe the experience of sliminess beyond just that barrier that they have to kind of pass through where of course mm -hmm. they get covered in slime. But yeah, what's, what's just like before slime or just after slime. And I think it is maybe these kind of these, these white snowy static, white noise kind of particulates that kind of um it's like an early warning system for slime yeah these these two things that we're talking about in this moment white noise and slime seem to be kind of these uh these nondescript things you know these amorphous things that we can ascribe any meaning to yeah, it's a place where you get stuck in your head. I mean, I'm just thinking now of like um, getting stuck in snowstorms yeah. where, you know, whiteout conditions or blizzard conditions and you really cannot tell up from down or left from right. Um, I think it was last winter I was skiing up at um, Mount Hood and mm -hmm. 
had to call it because the conditions were so terrible. And I knew that it was um, time to go to the lodge because I, I, I became really nauseous. Mm, um, okay. You know, the snow was deep. Um, the visibility was zero. And in some ways, you know, not being able to touch a surface and orient your body in space yeah. is, uh, is a slimy experience. I, you know, I started feeling kind of, yeah, kind of nauseous and um, uh, not scared, but kind of definitely aware that, you know, I didn't really know where I was. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think it, I think it's true. Um, what you're describing is really fascinating as a connection. How often do you find your work overlapping with your real life? Because you could have just as easily gone up to Mount Hood and called it because the conditions, you know, they were inclement. They weren't great. Yeah. But your mind made this connection to your work. Yeah, <laughs> it depends on like what you're thinking about, right? Like if you're, uh, what you're going through, like the, the songs on the radio start resonating like with you if you're having an experience that relates to what someone's singing about. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, I'm definitely like thinking about snow. We're like free associating right now, which I love. And so, uh, yeah, I was immediately thought of this situation of being in a, in a whiteout condition. Maybe at the time I wasn't connecting it with slime, but okay. um, I definitely am seeing it now. I mean, the reason that I brought that up is because I do that exact same thing. You know, I've, I've brought this up, uh, on the podcast before, I think maybe recently, but you know, in a former life I snowboarded and I'm always to this day, you know, using my, my middle finger and my index finger, just like snowboarding on stuff around town. Like if I'm walking somewhere, you know, and there's a rail or there's a curb, you know, I'm like, Oh, okay. That's a, that's a back lip that I could do right there. Or that's a, you know, a nose press or something. And it's just this constant um, overlap between like art and real life. Absolutely. I hear you. I mean, I having, you know, grown up skiing and snowboarding and skateboarding, I do that as well. Uh, and in fact, I have a colleague here at University of Oregon, a former pro skater, Ocean Howell, who okay. uh, teaches in the history department. And um, he writes about this idea of, um, of uh, looking at or thinking about um, urban design as um, from the point of view of skateability, for example. Yeah. Um, and this is kind of like a a strategy that a lot of urban designers are using in European cities in particular, um, thinking about how to make the city accessible, you know, even to skateboarders. And when you take that into consideration, um, yeah, like I like this idea, not only can everything be a kind of a, a place to do a 50-50 um, a or whatever, but it might actually, yeah. the design might take that into consideration to make it even more possible. Um, but uh, yes, I hear you. Um, I'm teaching two classes right now, one on slime and another on the history of color. And so uh, absolutely uh, everything that I'm doing um, uh, is relating really heavily to one of those things or the other. Mm -hmm. um, and I kind of go into that mode um, when I'm developing a new class or when I'm teaching just because it's like an opportunity to bring something, well, you know, potentially bring something new into the classroom. So yeah, I'm kind of always in like a scavenging mode for <laughs> like related content. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another one of your projects, Rainbow Connection, is a video that shows you attempting to get your son's <laughs> soccer ball down from a tree. You yeah. accidentally kicked it up there and it got stuck. How often do you turn everyday situations into art? And how often do you do it to work through or make sense of that experience? Oh, wow. Um, I'm so glad that you <laughs> looked at that piece. <laughs> That might be maybe one of, 
uh, it might be the my favorite thing that I've ever made. That's okay. going to seem like okay. an outrageous thing to say. To, <laughs> but um, it, it's a rare example of me relating something personal. And in fact, it's highly personal. And um, that was like peak COVID, um, you know, peak boredom. Uh, it was an interesting experience having kids in elementary and middle school at that time, because um, by the end of it, I feel like um, having been in the house altogether, them overhearing or being a part of every conversation um, mm -hmm. uh, related to just sort of the day-to-day -day life um, that we all knew each other so well that mm -hmm. when COVID was over, I was like, um, you know, my kids can, they can just move out now. Like I've taught them everything I know, <laughs> like, like, you know, I mean, that's it. Like we don't, I don't have any, they've heard all my jokes. Um, they've heard all the stories. Uh, they know how to manage kind of, you know, the house. Um, they know how to whatever, uh, do all the things I'm joking, but um <laughs> But that was a that was a really poignant moment because, um, yeah, just the devastation of getting that ball stuck in the tree um, and then the effort that it took to get the ball out of the tree. It be, I became singularly obsessed with it, one, because um, we were stuck at home mm -hmm. and two, because I'm an artist, I guess. And that's something that artists do. They get singularly focused on something. Um, it was an opportunity to go outside and just kind of be physical. Um, but it also resulted in kind of like a semi long term arm injury mm. um, in the process of getting the ball down, eventually did get it down. And it was probably a month into trying to get the ball out of the tree by throwing tennis balls at it, hundreds, thousands of tennis balls eventually developing my throwing skills enough that I could consistently make contact with this ball. And at that point I thought, aha, let's get the super eight camera out. Yeah. And maybe if I start filming this, I can capture the moment when the ball falls out of the tree mm -hmm. and, um, shot a lot of film, um, and film is expensive to process. Um, but I wanted it to be sort of super eight or 16 millimeter film and eventually sort of had to stop filming it because it was so much footage that it wouldn't have really been kind of economically, feasible to process it all. Yeah. And I think it was a week later that I knocked the ball out of the tree. And when the ball fell out of the tree, I did not feel a sense of success or celebration. Mm -hmm. I actually felt totally devastated. <laughs> really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And um, the video, I think the film, the footage, maybe that you've, that you've seen that piece, Rainbow Connection, mm -hmm. um, is a successful piece in that it shows the sort of the effort or the kind of desire to get the ball out of the tree, but it doesn't actually deliver it. You never see the ball come out of the tree. And I think um, for me, that was something that um, was a really interesting idea. Just going back to the slime thing of wanting to know or wanting to understand, wanting to achieve something, um, desiring something. Oftentimes when we attain that thing, um, we don't feel the kind of satisfaction maybe that we expected. And we realize that the desire itself was a really important part of um, important part of, uh, of the experience. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it was, you know, uh, it was just a funny, <laughs> funny situation. <laughs> Sorry, that's a very long winded answer. No, no, no. I, I, you know, that leads me, leads me to think about, are there any experiences from your past that you wish you could have turned into an art project, maybe to help you work through? Wow. I feel like I'm on the analyst's couch right now. Um, I watch a lot of Frasier. <laughs> uh, I see now you're, you've revealed your technique. Um, yeah. Um, hmm. 
I'd have to think about that um, in terms of filming things. Gosh, uh, that's a great question. I've attempted to sort of uh, film or make pieces about skiing, for example, or okay. snowboarding. Yeah. Um, I've shot footage on the mountain. I've never been satisfied with any of it. And to be honest, um, I wasn't even, I'm still not sure quite how to do that, but I've been wanting to make a body of work about, about skiing for a long time. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one thing. Um, what would that look like? What would it look like? Uh, the experiments um, that I've done really consist of uh, basically, you know, having been a big fan of like Warren Miller films, for example, mm -hmm. um, looking at sort of moments in those that really stood out as like visually kind of um, ecstatic, kind of like beyond just showing someone doing something that there was a visual quality, a cinematic quality that was really exciting. Yeah. And for me, oftentimes that was like just snow being sprayed um, at the moment of like, you know, a, a turn through powder or kind of somebody coming to a really abrupt stop. Um, I've always liked that kind of effect. Um, so that's like an example of something like I've always wanted to make a piece that somehow captures or conveys or, you know, does something with that sort of that quality of, of snow spray, which is a lot um, like the white noise. It's a lot like white noise. Yeah. And it's also formless. Like it's just a cloud, a kind of right. But it's the yeah. day has to be perfect. The light has to be perfect. You know, I mean, if I really committed myself to that, I think there is a piece there. So that's something to think about. Um, and the other is sort of, um, uh, like uh, just being on the water. Um, I've shot a lot of film uh, while sailing and um, I've never been happy with that. I think for similar reasons that there's just something that's almost too intangible mm -hmm. about um, the materials or the, the surfaces. Um, you know, there's just so many factors that are coming into it. Not as an, not to say that um, that's an excuse, I guess I just haven't fully kind of formed a, an approach to how to, how to um, approach that type of subject matter. Yeah. But those are two things that I think about often. Like uh, every time we're sailing, I have um, a Super 8 camera with me. And oftentimes when we're skiing, um, I have a camera, you know, either just a phone camera or at times have brought a Super 8 camera with waiting for something. I'm not sure what. <laughs> when did you get into sailing? Um, pretty recently, actually. Um, I grew up, you know, uh, growing up in Alaska, spent a lot of time on boats of various kinds. Um, never really sail boats a little bit, but um, mostly just fishing boats, um, dinghies, um, rafts on rivers, etc. Yeah. Um, got into sailing maybe six or seven years ago um, at the kind of encouragement of a friend whose family um, spends their summers in the San Juan Islands in Washington sailing. Um, and really was just blown away by um, just the whole experience of sailing um, and the way in which you can access all these really kind of incredible places um, uh, in, in a sailboat. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, my family got into that. Um, we have a sailboat and spend quite a lot of time in the summer sailing um, in the San Juan's Puget Sound area. Okay. Um, I have to say it's really hard to learn new complicated things in your forties. Not recommended. <laughs> Not I recommended. think it's also tough to learn it in your thirties too. <laughs> to totally. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, I think the younger, the better, you know, like uh, watching how quickly my oldest kid who was at 11 of uh, mm -hmm. 10 or 11 at the time, she took a sailing class and within like two days could basically completely you know, successfully sail a, a small uh, cat rig dinghy yeah. by herself, just thinking, wow, if someone had taught me to do that when I was 10, I'd be, you know, who knows, maybe I, <laughs> who knows, but just the the idea of learning things young is a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be Greta. Right. Yeah. <laughs> T totally. 
Something you told me while we were messaging back and forth was how much growing up in Alaska shaped you. I know we kind of got into this a little bit earlier, but could you tell me more about it, how Alaska shaped you? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, and as it relates to our previous conversation, I mean, one, one thing I want to like be clear about, especially just because this is like, um, you know, in the context of a lot of conversations you've had with um, um, indigenous people in Alaska is I, um, I, you know, I grew up in Alaska, I guess that's the way I sort of describe myself. Um, and um, specifically, I grew up in Girdwood. And for anybody who's been to Girdwood, um, you know, it's a kind of like a pretty specific place. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when when I was growing up, it was a really small town, you know, four or 500 people, I think. Um, uh, it was not sort of what it is currently. Moose Meadows was a blank space. Um, the resort was there, but it was much smaller than what it is now. Mm -hmm. um, and my experience was just the experience of being kind of like a kid in a really small community with um, a lot of uh, helpful, kind of interesting, eccentric people around. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so in terms of how it influenced me, I think that I always have been drawn to that idea of um, a kind of closeness or supportiveness of a kind of a community. Um, and also uh, just maybe typical of just kids that grew up in the 80s um, had a lot of free time um, to just kind of do our own thing, <laughs> like yeah. after school all the time. Um, and there was not a lot of trouble that you could get into. Well, there was a lot of trouble you could get into, but at least it was contained within the valley. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty much like in my experience limited to either, you know, skiing in the winter every day. That was the only thing there was to do. Mm -hmm. Um, and then in the summer, um, you know, the summer activities, which would have just been like goofing around. So, um, yeah, it was just probably typical of like the, the experience of people who grew up in, in really small towns, but with that sort of added feature of it being basically a kind of a hippie or a post hippie, like ski bum town, you know? Yeah. And is that something that you try to give to your kids this sense of outdoors and freedom, independence, yeah, I try to. It's challenging as a parent. You know, uh, parenting is such an experiment. Um, it's a kind of like uh, we always joke about when to how do you know when to push a kid and when to encourage, discourage, um, mm -hmm. when to allow them to make their own decisions, et cetera. But um, one thing that we have done consistently is try to engage them or introduce them to activities that we enjoy. Mm -hmm. um, that they can, that we can enjoy together. So skiing is one thing I've encouraged my kids to ski. We do a lot of skiing together. Um, luckily they both love it, which is a best case scenario for a dad who wants to ski. <laughs> yeah. Um, cause then you've got some, 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 uh, some, some ski buddies. Um, and then, uh, sailing, I mean, really the reason for that was to try to, um, give the kids an experience of, um, being outside and in close contact with nature that was, for me, felt similar to my experience growing up in Alaska. Mm -hmm. I mean, the San Juan Islands, that area feels sort of like a submerged version of, um, you know, the Chugach Mountains or something. It's like mm -hmm. there's certain moments where I'm like, wow, this this texture, this rock or this <laughs> this feature is exactly like something that I have encountered before, you know, when I was a kid. Yeah. And uh, I like that just you know, by the end of the summer, we joke, like we've seen so many bald eagles and killer whales and porpoises that the kids are bored. Um, <laughs> and I, I like, I like that idea, but it's, you know, it takes, it takes effort to kind of provide that experience for kids. Yeah. Have you introduced your kids to slime? 
oh yeah, I'm not allowed to talk about it at home anymore. <laughs> um, so this, this, you can imagine my excitement and being able to indulge in this conversation with you. Um, my, my, uh, my kids, when I was working on the book, they were constantly bringing me examples um, of slime. And there are so many kind of new examples in film and video games. Um, there are kind of slimes in Minecraft. There are yeah, okay. um, that sort of uh, Nintendo Switch game Splatoon, which is all about just spraying paint everywhere, but it's basically <laughs> slime. Yeah. And then your character turns into a squid and swims through the paint, you know, aka slime. So, uh, yeah, they're they're totally they're into it. Um, we draw slimy blobs and slimy creatures often when we're just doodling or goofing around in the house. So yeah, the kids are, you know, they're into it. I mean, kids are into slime and yeah. I've definitely kind of made it a, a sort of a featured topic in our house. So yeah. <laughs> Throughout your book, the harbingers of slime have changed over the years from mediums excreting ectoplasm, like I mentioned earlier to what nuclear explosions do to the human body to art and even music to a certain extent. Who do you think the harbingers of slime are right now? Oh, that's so challenging to think about. Um, we see a lot of retro slime right now, uh, returns to um, ways that slime appeared in horror films through the sort of resurgence in um, horror films through production companies like A24 mm -hmm. or even in um, Stranger Things is the most recent example. Um, so I think there's like a lot of rehashing or kind of revisiting um, uh, older forms of older forms of slime. But I think the, um, the best kind of um, conversations that are happening about slime right now are happening um, by people who are primarily interested in ecology. Mm -hmm. um, and environmental sciences. Um, there's a German science writer by the name of Susan Wedlick who wrote this really fantastic book um, called A Natural History of Slime. Okay. And in this book, she is essentially kind of talking about natural history, but talking about how slime is present throughout um, in hydrogels and in excretions by various creatures, etc. Um, and so I like that connection of slime to um, things that um, exist in the world that we kind of, you know, are always experiencing, can't avoid, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it's not presented in a way that's scary. So that I think is really exciting. Um, Elvia Wilk writes about this. Um, Lucy F. Jones wrote this really wonderful essay recently called um, Creatures That Don't Conform. And in this essay, she talks about a walk through the forest looking for slime molds, finding the slime molds and kind of understanding them as these sort of um, uh, these creatures or these sort of... Um, uh, ways of being that offer maybe new ways of just thinking about um, uh, uh, being a being a creature on Earth. Mm -hmm. um, so I like this kind of connection of slime to things that, rather than being scary, might have healing properties. Um, so I think that that's kind of like where the conversation about slime is right now, um, that it's not scary um, and that it's uh, natural. And furthermore, that it's kind of not only unavoidable, but maybe it has really beneficial kind of qualities in terms of how we experience it. Um, and um, what we can gain by thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as I was reading, I kept thinking that in more ways than one, it seems like you're making a case for slime being an analog or a proxy for describing a curious unknown or going farther back, a destructive unknown. Yeah, um, that's really well put, um, Cody. I, um, 
that's really well put. I, I don't know. I don't know what else I could say. I think that, um, yeah, you've, you've kind of like summarized the project in a way. I think the challenge is um, when writing a book, and this is the, this is the first book that I've written, um, is that you in some ways realize what the book was about, uh, maybe as you're finishing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, one of the challenges was to uh, try to think about or try to decide how far to go, right? In, in other words, like, is it a book that kind of encapsulates like the history of slime up to this point? Or does it kind of show a trajectory that also points to these future these future sort of notions of it um, and I think um, when my book was published um, it was published um, just as some of these new works that I'm referring to were being published or shortly thereafter these new works were published mm-hmm. that pointed in this new sort of positive um, direction for slime and I had seen some hints of this and I was interested in that but I hadn't um, you know, that's a very new idea and a really exciting one, yeah. I think. Um, even if you think about like the legalization of um, psychedelic mushrooms, for example, mm-hmm. um, this, you know, I write about this in relationship to um, psychedelic um, psychedelic art um, and psychedelic graphic design and also just the psychedelic experience in general, this idea of kind of loosening of the synapses, um, different kind of um, uh, cognitive connections are being made and there's this kind of fluidity of experience and feeling that's created and it is for me slimy and I think now um, for example there's uh, sort of medicinal or kind of um, health related applications or uses for psilocybin mushrooms uh, mm-hmm. they have therapeutic functions and it's no longer seen as something that's like subcultural but it's being kind of um, integrated or accepted or um, uh, you know channeled into these sort of uh, well-being oriented kind of applications I, li- I like this idea. I think it's also kind of more evidence of this idea of formlessness or sliminess or um, uh, these kind of uh, fluid, the fluidity of experience being positive. Mm-hmm. Do you think we can look at oil as slime? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yes, I think um, one of the earliest references to slime is a reference to asphaltic slime. Okay. And this is in uh, Paradise Lost. This is later uh, illustrated in illustrated versions of Paradise Lost. And this is uh, um, uh, obviously this epic poem refers at one point to um, Satan constructing a bridge between the underworld um, uh, from the underworld to earth uh, out of asphaltic slime as he and his interlocutors are traveling across it. So there's really early precedent for asphalt or asphaltic slime. Um one of my favorite slime, my favorite slime in the world is um, in Los Angeles at the La Brea Tar Pits. Okay. Um, and there's slime, well, I, I guess it's tar, right? So it's a decomposed megafauna um, <laughs> bubbling up from the ground. Okay. Um, right in that mid Wilshire area, Fairfax and Wilshire. And you can kind of walk around um, with a stick and occasionally you'll see a fissure of tar bubbling up and you can poke it. And it's, it's, uh, it's asphalt, it's asphaltic slime. Um, and uh, so that I think is really kind of fascinating. Um, there's reference to sort of slime, uh, kind of asphaltic slime or an oily slime, petroleum-based slime in um, Nabokov's um, book Lolita, mm. talking about the sort of trail of slime that's left behind as a result of their sort of relationship and their road trip across America. Okay. And I think it also ties into the fact that they're just traveling, right, driving literally across asphalt. Um, asphalt, of course, like, being sort of hot and sticky and then solidifying into kind of a hardened uh, surface material. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so there are definitely, uh, for sure. I mean, the most devastating example of this, I think, for me is um, thinking personally, and this is maybe the most personal part of the book, is writing about the Exxon Valdez oil spill. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that, uh, to this day, when I read about that event and think about how it was handled, how it was characterized, the kind of public relation um, uh situation surrounding it it's kind of um just um unimaginable in a way the scale of it i think it's right estimated as um that 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 uh, accident spilled between 11 and 38 million gallons just the idea that there's a question yeah uh, <laughs> that it could be between between one or the other it's literally a kind of um you know a 3x like difference in yeah. scale or almost 4x difference in scale so um yeah, that I would say was a slimy event. And I think it's this kind of idea of um, this sort of um, biodegraded kind of past emerging threateningly, mm-hmm. you know, or being spilled and it poses this kind of immediate threat. This is like unre- unrefined, you know, it's not even refined uh, oil. It's just basically crude oil. Yeah. So do we look at oil as a curious unknown or a destructive unknown or both? Yeah, um, maybe both. I think like at the La Brea Tar Pits, when I see it, I can't help but like poke it with a stick, but I wouldn't poke it with my finger um, because yeah. <laughs> um, I'd have to like wash it off with acetone or something, right? Yeah. I don't know. Um, uh, I think it's like a reality of our current kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of fuel needs. Like we still are dependent upon fossil fuels, um, so we benefit from it, um, but we're also kind of threatened by it. Um, yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword. So as we've talked about in this conversation, slime is this ever-evolving and shifting thing that describes things of cultural significance. It's even taken a foothold in rap music. I'm not sure if you've you've heard this or you know about this, uh, but it's mainly a substitute for friend or homie. Artists like Nori from Capone and Noriega and newer guys like Young Thug have used it. Did you encounter that at all? I did. And I, I actually wrote a section, a short section in the book about um, Young Thug and okay. his sort of use of, um, of slime in his lyrics. Um, of course, his mixtapes, um, slime language. Um, there are multiple volumes of this um, project um, are really fascinating. I like the connection or just the pun between slime language and sign language. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I it, something really amazing happens there in the context of rap music, which rap music is phenomenally good at, which is kind of expanding or kind of demonstrating this um, just uh, elastic potential in language to mean different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I joke with my students, we refer to each other as uh, slimes. What's up, my slimes? Oh, um, really? About okay. This. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I love and that. again, yeah. And I think it's also like this, um, an example of this positive direction, right? Like, yeah. uh, it's not, it's not negative. Um, and this is another place where if we look at um, young thugs, this is great. I think this is the only conversation in the world where, where anyone has, um, where we've talked about, um, we're talking about young young thug and slime and Jean-Paul Sartre. So, right, Sartre characterizes a slimy character as like someone who's deceitful and sneaky and underhanded, right? And, yeah. um, and young thug is using it in a way that's completely the opposite and totally, totally, it totally makes sense. Um, it's a more positivist kind of application of this term. Um, what's up, my slimes? Yeah, it makes sense. You want your slimes to stick around. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, I think I, I can see the kind of conversion of these negative qualities to to kind of beneficial ones. Okay, so 
What do you think the word slime will be used to describe next? Oh, wow. Um, I think, um, you know, like uh, one of the things I've been noticing is that it often refers to sort of like a residue or kind of a, a residual sort of um, uh, a residual sort of um, stuff. Um, so maybe there's something about that. Maybe that's a little bit old fashioned in terms of slime, but I do see um, kind of slime still representing some kind of evidence of something that's been left behind. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would have to think further about that, but it might be something that's a little bit, a little bit kind of um, adheres in some way to um, a previous sort of notion of it, but maybe one that um, hasn't been sort of used or thought of a lot. I definitely think it's, we might be past the point now where slimy things are scary. Um, so I like the idea of um, of, uh, of slime being somehow, you know, a positive term that's used in other ways, aside from referring to your friends as slimes. <laughs> I wonder also if it's a combination of the two, you know, nuclear fallout can turn you into slime, but at the same time, you know, your buddies are your slimes. Totally. Um, this uh, friend, a fellow artist, Oliver Payne, um, who made this really great um, art video um, called A Brief History of Slime. Okay. Um, uh, he, he, he and I refer to each other as uh, brothers in slime. Um, and so there's something about the slime that kind of, uh, that bonds us, that, that brings us together, this kind yeah. of shared interest. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, Christopher, those are all the questions I have for you. You know, I want to thank you for chatting with me today about your art, your life, and of course, slime. Thanks so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the podcast and appreciate the work that you're doing here. And I just was really excited and really grateful to be a part of the conversation. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine you can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine crude conversations is written hosted and produced by me cody liska for crude magazine music was produced by alcoda beats 